So before, I just kind of want to briefly cover the attributes that we've discussed up to this point. So we've done God is, God exists, he has existence, God is. God is spirit, God is eternal, God is immutable, which is unchanging. And then part of immutable, we also discussed God is impassable. I, I like to think of impassibility as is a subset of this, but usually it gets its own. So we separated, we basically did two in one that night. So, and we've done more than, you know, these four weeks because we did a lot of groundwork on what we call epistemology, right? How do we know who God is in the first place? And we talked about scripture and natural revelation and things of that nature. So we covered a lot of groundwork before we even discussed the attributes. But once we got into the attributes, we've technically covered five so far. His existence, spirituality, his eternality, immutability, and impassibility. And so tonight, we're looking at our sixth one, which is that God is omnipresent. He, is, he has omnipresence, some might say. So just for those of you who are familiar with the term, what does it mean to be omnipresent? What is omnipresence? Exactly, yep. yep. So omni, Latin for all or to everywhere, all present, all present everywhere. Presence, that's what omnipresent means. It literally means everywhere, present. Uh, the fancy term for this is ubiquitous. When you discuss something being in everything, it's ubiquitous. And, so, you know, people might say, like, secularism is ubiquitous in this culture, right? There's, you know, you can use it metaphorically, spiritually, literally, but that's what it means for, to be ubiquitous. We use this word a lot in our Sunday school class, if you recall, one of the arguments against a literal presence in the supper was that Christ's body cannot be ubiquitous. In other words, his human body can't take on the divine attribute of omnipresence, so his human body can't be in all of these different Eucharists all over the world at the same time. Ubiquity, that's, that's what we talk about. So some, the reason I bring that up is if you were to ever like buy a book on the attributes of God, you might see this ubiquitous. Um, that's what that means. But the more popular phrase, omnipresence is kind of a, mo a, a novel term um, because people like what we call the three omnis, omnipresent, omniscient, and omnipotent. Uh, but omnipresence is so closely relinked to infinity that a lot of times you will see the attribute actually being called God is infinite. And then omnipresence is sort of a subset of that. There is technically a distinction between omnipresence and infinity, but it's so minor that I, I think it's okay for us just to go ahead and make them synonyms. So tonight we're discussing God's infinity, his infiniteness, or his omnipresence. They're the same thing. He is infinite, which makes him everywhere present. He has to be if he is infinite. So that's basically a brief definition. Let me give you what some of the, the theologians that I read have said. Um, I really like this. This is kind of the, the slight distinction between omnipresent and infinite. Uh, a man named Gerald Bray, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut it off over there. He says, omnipresence is the way we perceive God's infinite being. To be infinite is to be without boundaries. So he says, God is without boundaries in any way. No part of God has boundaries. His, his being, his love, his mind, his knowledge, nothing of God has boundaries. He is without boundaries. And then the, when we try to conceive of a boundless being, what we end up conceiving is an omnipresent being, a being that is everywhere. So omnipresence, in other words, it's like if you, when you take God's infinity and you try to cram it into a human brain, omnipresence comes out the other end, 
right? Like that's how, that's the only way for us to conceive of an infinite being is to speak of him being omnipresent, being everywhere because he is without spatial bounds. He is unlimited. But some of the other theologians I've read, um, I like what John Gill says, we say God is infinite. The meaning is that he is unbounded or immense, unsearchable and not to be comprehended. The omnipresence of God or his ubiquity which as it is included in his infinity must be strongly concluded from it. For if God is infinite, that is unbounded with respect to space and place, then he must be everywhere. So that's essentially just exactly what I just got done saying. Because God has no bounds, because he is infinite, you have to conclude that he is omnipresent. Because if you were to say, here's a place that God does not exist, you've put a boundary or a limit on that which has no limit. So if he is infinite, he is by definition omnipresent. That's what John Gill is saying. Stephen Charnock says, God is essentially everywhere. And we're going to talk about this at the end of class. But when, he, when, when, when theologians and philosophers use the word essentially, they're meaning it much more literally than when we use the word essentially. When, when we use the word essentially, we typically mean um, like we're summing up the important part, right? So if I were to ramble for 10 minutes and I would say, what I'm essentially saying is this. So we tend to use the word essentially like a summary, that's not how theologians and philosophers use that term. When he says essentially, he means God's essence. God's essence is everywhere. And we're going to talk more about what that means at the end of class. But I just want to say this is not a throwaway word for Charnock. This is a very important word for Charnock. That God's essence is everywhere. He is essentially everywhere present. Uh, let me just actually just give a brief illustration, although we're still going to talk about this. For example, um, if, if Layla and Matthew had stayed home tonight, I could, in a certain sort of metaphorical sense, speak of being present in the home. In the sense that my authority over Matthew goes wherever Matthew goes. Right? Matthew is always expected to obey me, even if we're not in the same room. You know, when he becomes a, 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 a teenager, and I, if I go on a trip, he doesn't get to break all my rules. So if Matthew were at home, I could say, I am present in the house in a certain sense. But I would not be essentially, my essence would not be present in the house because my essence is contained to my body. So my essence would not be present in my house, but my authority would be present in the house, right? So what Charnock is doing here is he's trying to, to make sure you're not thinking, he's speaking in some kind of metaphorical God's authority exists everywhere, or his knowledge exists everywhere, but the, the actual being of God, his very essence, exists everywhere. He is in all places. God is essentially everywhere present. A body or spirit, yet because finite, fills but one space, God, because infinite, fills all, yet is not to be contained in them as wine and water is in a vessel. He is from the height of the heavens to the bottom of the deeps, in every point of the world, and in the whole circle of it, yet not limited by it, but beyond it. So again, in all of creation, God's essence is equally present in every part. But then he wants to say, but don't think of him as just filling creation, because then you would still be putting a boundaries on creation, right? He existed before creation. So he's not only present everywhere in creation, but beyond creation. Outside of time and space and in time and space, his essence is there and it is everywhere. So let's just go cover some brief biblical evidence. Where does the Bible speak of God being omnipresent? 
Probably the classic, most important text that people bring up comes from Psalm 139, 7 through 10. This is very, very important. David writes, where sh- oh, I think this is a Psalm of David, I can't remember. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I, if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Right? So this is poetic, metaphoric, but the point that he's trying to make is very clear. No matter where you go, God is there sustaining you and leading you. You can't go anywhere where God is not. Right? So... Fairly, fairly simple, but again, very, very important. Where shall I free? And notice, from your presence, not from your authority, not from your thoughts, from your very presence, from your very being, where can I go where you are not? That's, that's where it is. We also see this from Jeremiah 23, 23 through 24. God says this, Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. This is really, really important. So God begins with a metaphor, right? When he says he is a God far away, he's not contradicting Paul when Paul in Acts 17 says God is not far away. This is a metaphor when he's, for him saying that I am everywhere present. He says, I am close at hand and I am also far away. So as close as you want to get, God is there. As far out as you want to go, God is there. He's the God who's right here in this room with us. He's the God who's on Pluto right now, right? He is close and far away. Can a man hide himself in secret so that places that I cannot see him? Again, he is present everywhere. He sees all things, declares the Lord. And then this is important. Do I not fill heaven and earth? Notice he doesn't say, am I not in heaven and earth? He doesn't just place himself in heaven and earth, but he specifically describes himself as filling it. He fills it. So again, this cannot be some generic metaphoric reference to his authority or just some kind of hyperbolic statement of how much he knows. He fills whatever place you're in. He's, he completely fills it up. He is everywhere. All of heaven and all of earth, he fills it. He's ubiquitous. He's everywhere, right? Um, But this is what I referenced from Acts 17. I love this. Paul is preaching at Athens to the pagan philosophers. And he's basically talking about how deficient their view of God is. And why his God is so much better than their idols and the idolatry that they've made. He looks at some of the idols that they've made. And he wants to correct their understanding. He wants to get them to repent of their idolatry. And here's one of the things he tells them. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. So much good stuff in here. He begins by telling them, that's what I have bolded, that God does not live in temples made by man. He does not live in these temples, right? And this is kind of how the pagans perceive God. They create these temples for God to dwell in. They create these idols of God, and then they put them in the temples. And Paul is saying, how absurd is it that your God has a house? My God's way too big for a house. My God's way too big for a temple. Now, we are going to get, trust me, we're going to get at the end of the class where the Bible does talk about God in the temple, and so we're going to get to that. But Paul is making a very clear statement here. God cannot be contained. 
That's what Paul's trying to say. My God can't be contained. He can't be in one room and not in another room. He can't live in a temple. He, he, he lives everywhere. He is not contained. And then he even goes on to say, he gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Believe it or not, this is actually a statement of many things, but one of its, it's a statement of God's omnipresence. And here's why. This idea that God is the giver of life and breath and everything. That means everything you have at every moment of the day is, is constantly coming from God. He is a constant energy source over you. And he's going to get to that again at the beginning. But so your, your every single breath is a gift from God. Every breath you take is a gift from God. Every bit of life you have is a gift from God. And so here's the question we could deduce from that. How is God able to give life and breath to all of these people all around the world, all at the same time, if he's not there? Right? If God was confined just to Roswell, everyone else dies. Because you can't have life or breath or anything without him. So, so Paul is juxtaposing your God who lives in a temple means he can only serve people in the temple. But since my God cannot be contained, he's able to serve everyone at all times because he is everywhere at all times. So he gives constant life and breath to everything everywhere because he is everything and he is everywhere. And then he gets more into God's uh, creation and sovereignty. He's the one who created everyone and put them where they should be. And then he even says that even pagans who are without scripture can still seek God and you, through reason and natural philosophy to some degree they can even find him. And he says why? Because God is not actually far from each one of us for in him we live and move and have our being. So again the same thing being described up here but his point is God is not some God dwelling in a temple somewhere and you have to take pilgrimages to find him and it's really hard to get there but God is no matter where you go he's there. He's close to you. You always have an access to God because he is always present. And the reason we know that he's not far from us, because again, same thing up here, in him we live and move and have our being. You could not exist. You could not live. You could do nothing unless God was, was with you, communicating that life to you. So because we live and move and have our being in him, if he was ever not with us, then we would cease to exist. So that's why we know he is omnipresent, everywhere present, because no matter where we go, he gives life and breath and everything. In him, we live and move and have our being. Bill. You said just we always have access to him. But and. we can't, I mean, we can't get away from him. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's the point. It's not, we can't go somewhere and look for him. Right. I mean, just, 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 just like he said, can man hide himself in secret places that I cannot see him? No. There's no hiding. Yeah, that's right. And, and when I say access, I, th that word could be clear. We, we, don't wanna, we don't mean that you can have a relationship with God outside of Jesus Christ, right? You can't have a relationship with God outside of Christ. But just insofar as you can know God is there and you can know things about God and you can experience God, that is always happening. And that's always available to you because God is always the one communicating life and breath and everything to you. Because we think mathematical straight line that just goes on forever. <laughs> That's one dimensional. Exactly. Exactly, yeah. Yep. He's he's more infinite than an infinite line. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, that's great. Uh, and, and, and what Paul is roughly, what I think some of the Old Testament theology in Paul's mind here is comes from places like Isaiah 66 1. 
Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? Right? God is asking this rhetorical question. What makes you think I can live in a house? I mean, I, I, I literally created time and space. I, I exist outside of time and space. What makes you think I need a somewhere to dwell or a house to dwell in when I, I exist beyond all of creation? Right? So here's another God's own testimony, rhetorical poetic testimony to, yeah, you can't contain me. You can't put me somewhere. I, I am everywhere. I am everywhere. Uh, another place that's common is to turn to talk about God's omnipresence is the story of the book of Jonah. But uh, I have some, I admit, I don't want to confuse anybody because I, I probably should have done an in-depth study of the book of Jonah before I made these comments. But uh, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of criticize a little bit the way we present the book of Jonah, generally speaking. Um, but I think the gist of it is right. But generally speaking, like if you, you know, did Sunday school growing up, if you learned Bible story as a kid, whenever you're taught, God's omnipresence, it's almost always coming from the book of Jonah. And because the book of Jonah essentially is someone who's trying to get away from the presence of the Lord, and he goes way out onto a boat, he goes way out onto a sea, and then he learns that there's, there's nowhere I can go where God is not. Now, I do think that that's generally speaking a good message from Jonah. Like if, if you taught your kids that, I would say amen, good for you. Or if you haven't, I would encourage you to. So I, I do think that that is the message of Jonah. But I, I did just want to critique. I do think Jonah deserves a little bit more credit. He was a prophet after all. I don't think in Jonah's mind, he actually thought that God was not everywhere present. Um, when the book of Jonah talks about him fleeing the presence of the Lord, this is something we're going to get to, I told you about. But I, I think more so what was happening in Jonah's mind was that God declared his presence was in Jerusalem. God said, this is where I uniquely reside. And when Jonah got mad at God for calling him to Nineveh, he wanted to flee the holy city. He wanted to flee his ministry. He, he didn't actually think, if I go to Tarshish, God can't find me. Like, I don't, I don't think Jonah actually thought that. I think for Jonah, it was more so just rebellion against missionary work. It was a rebellion against being in this sacred, holy place um, so that, that's all I would say. I, I, don't think it's, I don't think we have good enough evidence to believe that Jonah, who was a prophet, actually thought God was blinded from Tarshish. But none of, nonetheless, that is, still is the gist of Jonah, though. That still is a message from Jonah, so we should still teach it to our kids that no matter where you go, God is there. So we see this at the beginning. This is the very beginning. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Again, I don't think that means he doesn't think God is omnipresent. He's fleeing the holy city where God uniquely resided. It says it again. So he goes to Tarshish, right? He goes down to Joppa. He gets on a boat and he tries to sail to Tarshish to flee the presence of the Lord. And then this big, these big waves come, the storm comes, and the Gentile safe, you know, sailors or what's going on, they, they can tell it's judgment from God, and so they're trying to find a way to appease God, and Jonah says, it's my God who's doing this, sorry, that's my God, my bad, and it's because of me, and uh, they don't believe him at first, how do you know that? Like, we need to be sure before we do anything, and he says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land, now, certainly what Jonah is primarily trying to communicate to them is, trust me, uh, my God, it can, can, he's the one who brought the storm, and he's the one who can stop the storm. And how do I know that? Because he made it. 
So primarily what Jonah's trying to tell them is, trust me, my God is the one who's in control of the wind and the waves, so if you throw me overboard, he'll stop the storm. But, in, but we saw earlier, even in the book of Acts and some of the other passages that we read, that God being the creator of all things is an argument from God that he is omnipresent. Like, how could he have made everything if he was, like, moving from one space at a time, right? He, he, he wouldn't there. So certainly part of what we see here is because God is the maker of all the sea and dry land, the idea is he's there. There's no dry land, there's no sea that he's not present because he's the one who made it. So certainly he is not just communicating here, my God is in control of the winds and the waves. He's, he's saying my God's here. He's not just in Jerusalem. He's the one present with us causing the waters to do this. And then even when he's in the belly of the fish and he repents, he says, so I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Again, I've, I've fleed from the presence of the Lord. Nevertheless, I will look again towards your holy temple. This is why, again, going back up here, I think Jonah was saying, I am outside of God's favor. I'm outside of God's holy city, but I will look back to the holy city. I, I will cast my eyes back on it. So this is why I don't think we should accuse Jonah of denying God's omnipresence. But all that said, I just wanted to kind of stand on my soapbox for a minute. All that said, I still think it's a good lesson from the book of Jonah for our kids that you cannot run from the Lord. You cannot flee him. There's nowhere you can go where he's the maker of all things. He is present there. So that's all the primary biblical passages. I was going to fly through just some other reasons, but do you have any just brief thoughts or questions on the biblical passages we've looked at so far? Any just general comments? Exactly, yeah. And we're going to get to that more. But yeah, that's right. That's, there's no hiding from him. Yeah, that's right. If, if, if God's not in hell, then he's not God, right? God is everywhere present. So whoever's not in hell is not God. Yeah, that's right. And we're actually going to talk about that, but that, that's a great thought. Um, so just some further reason. I know you probably get it, but just some other stuff. Uh, like all the other attributes, they work together. They prove each other. So the other attributes we have of God prove that he is omniscient, or um, forgive me, omnipresent as well. Um, if God is infinite, then all his attributes are infinite, right? Um, and so infinite love, infinite knowledge, infinite power, everything about God is infinite. Everything about God is therefore omnipresent. So if we have any biblical passages that talk about his love or knowledge or power being infinite, then we know by deduction he is infinite. So, for example, when Paul says in Romans 11, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. God's wisdom and knowledge, which result in proper judgments, are unsearchable. That's another way of saying infinite. They're boundless. You, you could not fully exhaust them. You, you could not fully cover. If you sent a search party through the wisdom and knowledge of God, the search party would never be able to cover the whole surface area. You would never be able to cover the whole area. You can't search it because it's without bounds. So if his wisdom is unsearchable, his knowledge is unsearchable, his judgments are unsearchable, that means his being is unsearchable. His essence is unsearchable, right? Uh, another one related to what we said from Acts 17, James tells us every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Again, how can God give, if every person around the world, 
are all receiving good things all at the same time. How could God be the giver of all of those things simultaneously if he was spatially bound to one place? If he was in Roswell, he could bless everyone in Roswell, but he wouldn't be able to bless everyone in Africa because he's in Roswell. So the fact that we're all receiving constant good from God means he is with all of us. He is everywhere in order to give everything that is good. Uh, We talked about God being incomprehensible. If God has limit, then he could be fully known, right? Even if it took a really long time, if there is a place where God ends, then you actually could fully comprehend God. That would be possible. So if you're going to say he's incomprehensible, you by def- you would have to assume he's infinite. And if he's infinite, then he's omnipresent. So that's deductive reasoning. Uh, same with God's omniscience. He knows what is because he's there. The reason God can tell you what's happening in Africa is because he's in Africa. He can tell you what's happening in the solar systems around us because he's there, right? He knows all things because he is with all things. So that's kind of all the proof we have. Now we're going to spend the rest of the class looking at clarifications and then application. So we've kind of established, I think this is one you probably to some degree, as best as a human can understand it, you probably already have that coming in, Um, but I want us to talk about some clarifications and then applications. First and foremost, it's really important that we distinguish omnipresence from pantheism. Who knows off the top of their head what pantheism is? What is pantheism? Pantheism is the belief that everything is God. The word pan, right, we talk about it'll all pan out or panning something means basically everything, all things, covering all things. And theism, all is God. So a lot of Eastern religions are very pantheistic. So they believe that trees are God and you are God. And, and there is this divine essence. And he, when he created, he basically communicated himself into existence. And so everything is like a piece of God or everything is God in some way. We're all just like manifestations of God's essence. And so anytime you hear some like Hollywood spiritualist say something like, I recognize the God in you, they're most likely not talking about the image of God. They're most likely pantheistic, and they actually think you are God or that you have some divineness to you. Uh, It's very pantheistic that everything is God. Pantheism equals everything is God. Nature is an extension of the divine being. So when we um, think of omnipresence and how we distinguish it from pantheism, we would say God is not present through conjunction or mixture. So this is where the mystery, as I said, no attribute of God is easy to get. This is where some of it's going to get a little deep. But God is completely present, right, like in with these chairs. But God has not conjoined him, whoops, he has not joined himself to the chair. Right, there's not conjunction. It's not like God and the chair have been joined together. He's, He's present with the chair in every part of it, but he's not joined to it. So at no point in time could we ever treat the chair as if it is God. The chair is not God, even though God is fully present in every part of the chair, right? There's no conjunction. And likewise, there's also no mixture. God doesn't become mixed with the creation so that anything we have is like a combination of tree and God or fish and God or human and God, right? So this is the key distinction. God's presence, we would say, does not require conjunction or mixture, which means that we, yeah, and, and again, like we say, uh, this is where it gets deep. So all of our language is going to be some, to some degree 
limited because even surrounds, we don't want to say, because when you surround something, you're only present on the borders of it. You're not present in it. If you surround a city, you're not in the city. So surrounds, there's really no preposition in, with, under, none of these prepositions would ever do full justice. But we want to say in some way he's there, but he has not combined or joined his essence to the essence of something else. Contradiction is not the right word per se. I'm sure there's a lot of theological term for it, but there is a attribute of God that is, I think, how it is in multiple places. Mm-hmm. So this, for example, like God is everywhere, but like saying he's not in the chair um, in that regard. Or we, it's like, for example, God is Father, but he is neither male nor female. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we, we would certainly be able to say God died for your sins, but we would not say the Father is on the cross for you. Right. Right. Yes. Uh huh. Yeah. All of these go back to that first quote you put up there today. I think it says his. I wrote down his attributes are the way we perceive God. Yeah. So we need to remember that we are we are talking about something we can't understand. And this is not about, this is how we perceive God. It's not how God is. Because God is, big is. We can't, so, uh, yeah. You know, that's, that's really great, Bill, because, yeah, yeah, no, 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 yeah, let me build on that. So two things. Number one, I, I keep setting us up for it, and I feel bad because it'll probably be a long time before we finally get there. But my favorite attribute of God to talk about is God's divine simplicity. It's the hardest one to understand. And that's going to become a huge deal when we get to divine simplicity, is this idea of the attributes of God are not actually in God. It's just how we perceive Him. But we'll talk more about that when we get there. But another point to what you're saying is, um, in Christian philosophy, they've oftentimes, like Thomas Aquinas really did a big a good job at this, of distinguishing the difference between comprehension and conception. Is that the right word, conception? To conceive of something? In other words, Thomas Aquinas would say there are, there are things that you can conceive of, but you can't comprehend. Comprehension versus conception. So even, by the way, this isn't just big things with God. I would argue this exists even with things in nature. So for example, I was, one, I was, I was told of there are stars in the universe that are so big, it's impossible to put them to scale. And what that means is um, if I were to draw the star and I were to make it like the size of a marble, anything, if, and I say like this, the star, whatever star this is, is the size of a marble. Trying to compare any other star to it, it would be microscopically small. Even if I made the whole earth, let's say the whole earth is the size of almost anything would still be too microscopically. Like, we don't have enough space on the earth to actually create two-scale comparisons. That, that's how big some stars are in the physical universe. And I would challenge you to say something that big you can't comprehend. Like, your mind can't actually comprehend of it, but you can conceive of it. I just explained it to you. 
right? Like, you can understand that there's a star that encompasses a hundred billion suns. You can conceive of that. You get it. You get the math. You understand it, but you don't comprehend it. And what we would want to say is that there is a, we can conceive of God's attributes without comprehending them. And so here, what we want to say is, is you need to know that God is everywhere without conjunction or mixture. And that's not something you can comprehend, but you can at least conceive of it. You can at least affirm he's here, but he has not conjoined or mixed with it, right? It's, you have to conceive of it, but you won't comprehend it. Uh, I'm sorry, Bill. Because that's what we're talking about, is how we conceive or perceive. Right. Mm -hmm. What if the stars were so big that their gravity wouldn't let light get out? So you couldn't see Right. Which is theoretically what a dark hole is. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, I'm, I'm sitting here writing notes because I, because of my interest in physics, I mentioned to you the space-time, space-time continuum, which is something Einstein and his people came up with about 1900, mm -hmm. in the early 1900s. And it says... Space-time is a concept model combining the three dimensions, up and down and sideways, with time. So, you can't really wrap your hand, head around it very easy, but they've got mathematical formulas that work. Right, so they conceived of it, but they, they probably don't really comprehend and, it, yeah. And that's, that, in my opinion, when, when we read Genesis, when it says God created. He created the space-time continuum we're in. Right. And we live in it, and therefore, I mean, it's just so much bigger. So all of these things, they're, they're kind of about God, but it, they're really about our perception of God. How do we, how do we perceive it? Right. How, uh, and so it's not yeah, it's not that God is this. It's this is the best way I can see him or explain it. Yeah, uh, that, that, the whole, that's what the whole Bible is. The whole Bible is God condescending and giving us a conception yeah, of who He not, is. Yeah, it's not a definition of God. It's an explanation for us. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so another way to conceive of this is that God is in, but not part of. He's not a part of the chair. He's not part of the tree, but he's, he's in it. But he's not part of it. Pantheism would say God is part of it. God and the tree are mixed. You and God are mixed. You're conjoined. You are God, and the tree is God, and God is everything. And, and the reason this is important is because pantheists will say they believe God is omnipresent, and they technically do. If God is everything, if everything is God, then no matter where you go, you've encountered God. So in that sense, God is omnipresent. And so we want to just make sure we understand there's a huge difference between classical Christian omnipresence and Eastern religion omnipresence. Eastern religion, their God is omnipresence because of pantheism, because their God is everything. He's not everywhere, but he is everything. I believe so, yeah. But I don't know my Eastern religions very well, so I don't know. Yo, yeah. It all falls apart. You start introducing polytheism and pantheism, all the other attributes. That, one of the easiest ways to disprove these false religions is to know the attributes of God really well and demonstrate how their God cannot possibly be infinite, their God cannot possibly be eternal, their gods cannot possibly be, right? It's, yeah, if you know your attributes of God, you can refute all non-Christian religions. Personalizes 
it's now an essence and a thing, um, which obviously karma comes from Eastern uh, religions. Mm -hmm. It's like a karm karmatic thing, you know, in that regard. It's not a person, really. Yeah, it's, yeah, that's exactly right. And, and I actually, it's so funny, I, once a month I meet with Andrew, the pastor of Mountain View Baptist Church at, at Stellar's, and we talk. And this last time, it's, it's amazing how God works. Every time we go to get coffee, we're having, you know, we're talking church, we're talking theology. And there's always some character at Stellar's who overhears and wants to join our conversation. So we get an opportunity to preach the gospel every single time. It's pretty amazing. But this last time, we met a guy, a really eccentric kind of weird guy who... Apparently was like this really smart physics professor for a while, and then he moved out to the eastern part of the world to study um, acupuncture. And now he does acupuncture here, but he's like, you can tell he's, I don't mean this to be rude, but you can tell he's this mixture of brilliance and craziness. Like, you can tell the way he talks, he really is brilliant. Like, he knows a ton of huge words and a ton of big concepts. But the way he talks so fast and the things he talks about, you just can't follow or make sense. It was like this weird combination of crazy and brilliant, like all wrapped into one. And he admitted he's really into drugs. So I think he's just a really smart person who's drugged out a lot. And so that's what makes you crazy and, and smart at the same time. But anyway, he went out and studied acupuncture out east and he dove head, headlong into all these different Eastern religions. Now, he refused to pick one. He didn't say, I'm Buddhist, I'm Hindu, I'm anything. He's, he admitted, I'm kind of like an amalgamation. But the way he spoke of God was very impersonal. It was very much just like this, 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 this divine force that I can find and exists anywhere. But he refused to speak of God as even in terms of like love and mercy and goodness because... How is an impersonal divine energy good or merciful or holy? Or... So Jesse's exactly right. This, this leads to a very, very impersonal energy God, <laughs> right? It's... Which means if he's impersonal, he's not telling me what to do. And that's what, it, that's what our conversation came down to. Yeah, he's not, telling, yeah. he's not interfering with me because he's in me. Therefore... Therefore, everything I do has divine approval. Everything I do has divine approval, right? Because it has my, because it has my approval, and I'm God. Yeah. That's right. Most religions. That's what Romans one says. We suppress the truth of in unrighteousness. The, the the key importance to almost now there, this gets this gets complicated because obviously there there are other religions that suppress sinful desires too. Like you know Mormons aren't supposed to sleep around. So I, I'm not saying this is. There's, this is without nuance, but generally speaking, the Bible says in a general sense, the reason false religion exists is so that we can do what we want. We don't want God to tell me what to do, so we find religions that help us do that which we want to do. And that, that's what pantheism is. I'm God, I can do whatever I want, and the God in me approves. So I have divine approval for all of my feelings and visceral instincts, right? Yeah, and, and, and I like to tell you what to do. Therefore, you get Joseph Smith. Yeah. And you get that kind of idea. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It is, but yeah. Yep, that's right. Well, for less, for less. Yeah, please. This is where, this is, I think, where we're going to talk about that. It also, if Phil says, I think it's wrong to murder, and I say, well, God, he says it's not, how does he argue with that, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and, Yeah, yeah. It, even in our conversation, the guy would so quickly come back to criticize Western life or Western religion, and then the second he would begin to criticize anything, we would just simply ask him, by what standard? Like, you, you told me there's no such thing as good or bad, and then you immediately turn around and talk about all those mean Christians who shove their religion on people. 
Well, it's, apparently it's not bad to shove my religion on people. Apparently the God in me wants to shove my, and that's exactly, it just boils into total, uh, ske- not skepticism, but, you know, subjectivity and, yeah, it's lawlessness, yeah. By the way, you invited yourself into this conversation. Yeah, right, yeah, that's right, yeah, that's right. <laughs> exactly, yeah. But, yeah, no, that's all great stuff, yeah. So, again, omnipresence is not pantheism. God is in but not part of. He is in but he is not conjoined or mixed. Uh, I like the way Charnock gives a lot of different analogies. Here are some of my favorites. He says, nothing is God because it moves in him any more than a fish in the sea is the sea or a part of the sea because it moves in it. Fire is in heated iron in every part of it so that it seems nothing but fire, yet is not fire and iron the same thing. So again, you get the point, right? You know when you heat iron so hot so that you can bend it and mold it? You heat it up so hot that when they lift it up out of the flame, it just looks like fire. Like you can't even see any more iron. It's just bright light. So it looks like the, the, flame, the fire and the steel have, have, you know, mixed or something. But it's not. Like there's still a distinction between fire and iron. The heat maybe is mixed, but the fire is not. And again, no analogy is perfect. He, he knows that these analogies fall short somewhere. Uh, obviously, the water it does not cover a fish the way God is omnipresent, but there's still that general perspective where a fish is totally and always in water, yet we would never dare to say the fish is the water or the fish is part of the sea. Well, no, that's not true. So he's saying in the same way that God can be everywhere here, that doesn't make me God or make me part of God, right? So he just tried to give some basic analogies to explain how God can be in but not part of, right? So uh, we will end. We're, gonna, we're doing good on time tonight. So here's just some of my concluding thoughts, um, some fun applications for this. Uh, first and foremost, this is where it's going to, sorry, this, actually, this slide was supposed to be before this slide, so not concluding thoughts yet. One more thing. Um, and we already briefly talked about this at the beginning, and I said we'd get to it, so we will. One of the, one of the hardest things to talk about or to, to conceptualize or comprehend if you try to with God's omnipresence is that back to this issue we talked about of God's essence is everywhere present. The best way I have to describe this is what that means is that God, God's fully undividedly present in every place. And here's why that matters. So, because when we tend to think of something being everywhere, our minds are always prone to think of human analogies, right? Because that's how we operate. That's the world we live in. So we think of something like taking a balloon and filling it with water. And in that sense, like the water completely fills the balloon, and we kind of imagine that's how God is like, you know, the, the, the balloon is the world and God completely fills it. But the problem with that is water is made up of parts. We will, we will speak of whole things, a unit. Uh, we'll, we'll take, when, when parts, individual parts come together, we will speak of them as a whole. So like I don't talk about multiple bills. I just talk about one bill. There's one bill. There's one Becky. But you are not, you are one in a sense, but you are made up of many. So, uh, there is a sense in which your body could fill something, and you could say you're in it. But in a very technical sense, you are not fully there because you are not every part of you. Let me explain what I mean by that. Imagine someone made a coffin that perfectly, this was like the finest woods, you know, craftsman in the whole world, and he made a coffin that just perfectly covers my entire body. No inch is, is left. Uh, you could, and I get in it and they close it and it's just perfectly around me. You could say Colin fills the whole coffin. Colin is fully present in the coffin. Like that would generally speaking be true. But there would be a problem. 
if we were to be technical about it, the bottom part doesn't contain the full call and it just contains my feet. Right? If you were to just cut the bottom part of the coffin and, and examine it, it doesn't have all of call in there, it just has his feet. Same with my torso, same with my hands, same with my heads. So we will metaphorically speak of Colin fills that whole space, but my, my essence really doesn't fill it because one part fills this spot, another part fills that spot, another part fills that spot. The same thing happens with water. If you fill up a water balloon, you can speak of the water collectively as filling the whole balloon. But water, what is water? It's H2O. It's made up of, of uh, what's the word I'm looking for? molecules, right? And so, yeah, water, generically speaking, fills up that whole balloon. But if I were to focus in on one particular hydrogen molecule, that molecule does not fill up the whole balloon. There's one molecule down here. There's another over here. There's another over here. So, yeah, we speak of the water fills the whole balloon, but that's not really the case. The, the, the accumulative parts of the water together fill the whole balloon, but each part of the water doesn't fill the whole balloon. Does that make sense? So God is not made up of parts. Like, there's not like God has a spiritual toe and a spirit. God doesn't have parts. He's just one undivided essence. So God's full essence is everywhere, right? It's not like God is four inches long, and so within that four inches, you have different parts of God that are present there. But because all God is is his essence, his full, undivided essence is everywhere. Uh, just, just one more analogy. It's like if I were to lay across this table, you could in a certain sense say Colin covers the whole table. But again, it, like what's, what's covered up here is different than what's covered down here. But because God doesn't have parts, there's no difference between the God here and the God here. It's the exact same. His full, undivided essence is everywhere, which is more specific than just saying God is everywhere. Right? It's not just God. His essence is everywhere. And that's what I meant at the very beginning when Charnock said his definition, God is essentially everywhere. And I said that word essentially is really important. It's not a throwaway word. God's, it's, not just his, it's not just his presence that's everywhere. It's his essential being. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's right. And so, you know, when the Hindu says, look at the water, you can see the spirit of God, and when God is in the water, we, we have one who says, no, God's essence holds its water. The reason you can look at water and be profoundly stunned by something so simplistic as water is because its essence exudes out of it. That's right. Yeah, that's right. I have a question. Yeah. Isn't this coming close to defining the Lutheran view of the that, that's a great point. And the reason we would say no is because uh, the, a, a physical thing cannot be omnipresence. And this is exactly the point. I, I would actually argue this is, this is further rebuking the Lutheran point. 
Because once you say that everything is exactly present in the same spot, you cannot have something finite, something physical, like a, a human body cannot be everywhere present. And that, that goes back to my example. Like, uh, even uh, my whole body can't even be spatially fully present. Like, my feet are going to be somewhere that my head is not, and my head is going to be somewhere my foot is not. That's the, exactly right. That's the key difference. Yeah, thank you. And that's why the strongest argument, and by the way, um, I wish, I'll, I'm going to let you borrow it one time. Uh, Charles Hodge in his Systematic Theology has a great section where the, the Lutherans will actually talk about, they actually have a doctrine, I can't remember what it's called, similar to the Eastern Orthodox of what they actually call theosis or is the deifying of Christ's body. And, and they actually do have to go in so far and say that in some way God's divine attributes are communicated to the body of Christ so that Christ's body can be ubiquitous. And that's why the, the Reformed just kept saying that's Eutychianism. That's not, that's not historic Chalcedonian. That's Eutychianism. The body of Christ is not ubiquitous. It's not divine. So yeah, the, I, I would argue, again, it's exactly what you said. You, you can fully affirm God is everywhere present in the Eucharist, His Spirit, uh, his, his spiritual essence, but you cannot affirm that the body of Christ is fully present in the Eucharist. Yeah. Bodies are by definition spatial, by definition. So uh, to have a, a, a non-spatial body is to have a square circle. It's, it's, it, it just, it's, it's a contradiction of definitions. A body cannot be without space, without spatial dimensions or limits. So once you make his body ubiquitous, you've, you're saying it's an, and this is what Beza said. Beza jokingly said, the Lutherans want us to believe in a non-body body, a body that is not a body, because <laughs> that's, that's not a body. Yeah, great, great, great catch there. So let's finish with, now we'll finally get to the conclusions. Um, here are just some of the, uh, we could, uh, as always, there's tons of applications, but for some reason there's always just few that stick out most to me and I wanted to cover them. So one is that I think that the omnipresence of God teaches us of our human need for a sanctuary. In, in other words, our, in our finiteness, we need a place to focus our worship. We are not able to worship God everywhere He is because He is infinite and we are not. We can't do that. So God condescends to us by giving us focal locations where we can conceive of His presence and we can focus it there. We see this, by the way, before I make the application literally to our new sanctuary. That's what I'm going to do. But I want to show you with some Bible verses because if you really wanted to push back against God's omnipresent, most people don't. But if you wanted to refute it, you would go to all the different places in the Bible that do seem to speak of God's presence as being confined or bound, right? Uh, for example, the burning bush. When God was speaking in the bush, it would not have been theologically incorrect for Moses to say, look, God is in the bush. But what happened if some nerdy theologian behind Moses said, well, technically, Moses, God is ubiquitous, and so God is actually equally present in your sandals and in the mountains as he is in the bush, that's technically true. So what does Moses say? How does Moses describe the burning bush when God is just as present in, the, in Moses' sandals that he took off as he is in the bush? Well, obviously, and same with Jerusalem. God tells the people of Israel, Jerusalem is the holy city. This is where my presence resides. And this is why Jonah, when he fled to Tarshish, was fleeing the presence of the Lord. 
Uh, the temple, God had them build a temple, and he says, that's where my holiness is, and in the Holy of Holies, no one was allowed to go. So they all thought of God living in the Holy of Holies. In the Ark of the Covenant, same thing. And even in the New Testament, we're told that, that, he, that the church is the temple where the Spirit of God dwells. God is in the church. And God talks about sitting in heaven and being in heaven. You are on earth, but I am the one who fills heaven. So we have all of these examples in Scripture where God is seemingly being located. The way we understand that is Gil talks about that these examples only denote some more than ordinary manifestations of his presence or exertion of his power. So God's presence is not multiplied in these places, but he is able to make his presence uniquely known in these places. So he does that through a manifestation or an exertion of power. So God is not more present in the bush than in the rocks next to it, but he is manifesting his presence differently in the bush. It's a unique manifestation of his, of his presence. Charnock says of these different examples, I love this quote, it is the court of his majestical presence, but not the prison of his essence. When God says he dwells in the temple, he is, he's trying to help us who cannot comprehend inf infinitude. He is trying to help us. He's saying, okay, so imagine it like this. Think of the temple. That's my throne room. That's my throne. That's where I am. So he says, it's the majestical presence of God. There's a majesty to this place that God has ordained. He said, this particular place has a particular majesty that everywhere else doesn't. So it's the court of his majesty, but it's not the prison of his essence. So when God says, I, I, I dwell in the Holy of Holies, he's not being imprisoned there. His essence is everywhere, but there's some kind of majestical uh, uh, exertion of power there that we can conceive of it in our heads as that's where God is, right? That's where he is. And so here's what that does for us. That, that clearly teaches us that because, because we are not infinite like God and we can't, the best, the best thing God can do to help us is to sort of, analogically locate himself. To say, listen, I am everywhere. You can't comprehend that. So here, I'll sit on this metaphorical throne. Come to the throne and worship me there. Right? And that's what he did for the Jews. That's what he did. And so what this means for us is that's why it's helpful for us to think of God, even though he's not actually, as being uniquely present among the church and in the church. It's really, really helpful for us to come to church and say, okay, this is where God is. Now, of course, God is in your home. Of course, he's with you in your drive. But we want to think that there's some kind of sacred manifestation of God when we come together to worship him. And this is one of the reasons why, throughout all of church history, it's been important to have beautiful sanctuaries. I think most churches throughout church history have overdone this, but it's really nice. It's, it's helpful. It's not mandatory. It's not a biblical law. It's not mandatory. But it's helpful to have a designated place of worship. This place is marked off as holy. This is where God is. We're going to come and worship God and he, his presence is here among us. Now we know he's elsewhere, but it's a unique presence. By the way, this is what Jesus means in church discipline. Remember what Jesus says? Where two or more are gathered, there I am among them. Is Jesus trying to say that if there's only one Christian, Jesus is not there? <laughs> right? No, like, he's, he's present. He's present everywhere. But there's a, there's a unique presence when people are gathered. And so what we want to do is we want to gather as a church and say there's a unique manifestation of the presence of God here, and we want to locate it, and it's in the sanctuary. That's why I am really excited for that to be done, because it's just going to be really nice for us to have a room 
for fellowship and for coffee and for pleasure. But, but this room, this is not where God is. That's where God is, right? So you can, you can relax and chat and have coffee and be loud in here. But once we enter there, you're in the presence of God. Now, obviously, from a technical standpoint, that's an inaccurate statement. But because God condescended to his people so often, that helps us worship. So it helps us to worship by saying, okay, the fellowship hall is for fellowship, but the sanctuary is where the presence of God is located. We are in God's presence, so you take off your sandals. This is holy ground, right? It's nice to have a, a, a separated place of holiness because we cannot comprehend or worship God in his infinitude. Does that make any sense at all? In other words, we want to recreate the Holy of Holies, so to speak, to help us worship God. Maybe that's a bad way of putting it because the Holy of Holies was a type for heaven, but... Exactly. Yep. That's right. And over time, that spot begins to have an effect on you. Yep. Or your attitude has somehow a habit develops and an attitude and a feeling and all the things that people, what we need to feel like we're in the presence. That's right. That's a great example. You know, to, to, to finish that analogy, another example to add on to that is during COVID and all these people had to start working from home. Uh, a, a lot of people, I, I read these studies where a lot of people were excited for that, right? They, they didn't like waking up and driving every morning and, and they ended up not enjoying it nearly as much as they thought. And some of the reasons were distractions and stuff, but you want to know what was, I read one study, the main reason why people hated working from home. And the main reason was because work is not, for some people, it's not like where I necessarily want to be spending my time, right? Work, the job is the job. So work kind of carries with it these burdens, this obligation, I don't want to be there. And it affects the space you're in so much that when people started working from home, it made home feel like work. They couldn't be comfortable in their own homes. They felt like they were in the office. When they brought work into the home, it changed the whole atmosphere of the home. And because God, that God doesn't do that, God can't do that. But because of our finitude, we can do that. And so that's, again, for practical reasons why it's nice to have a, sac a sacred place. That's the temple. Yes, God is technically everywhere, but God is in the temple. So when you go to the temple, you behave differently than when you're just at your house. For the, exactly, for the point of focus. That's right. It helps us to focus our worship. That's right. We focus our worship by sanctifying a space for the presence of the Lord. Exactly, exactly. So again, it's not a rule. Like, I'm not saying the underground church is in sin because maybe they do everything in one little room. I'm not saying we're in sin because we do. It's just, it's a beneficial thing for us to do. Um, another thing is it's good motivation to repent. <laughs> I'm going to try to fly through these, and I mean these in two reasons. One is the way what Jesse was saying earlier. Oftentimes in evangelical culture, we describe hell as a place of separation from God. And we usually do that because we're kind of embarrassed by hell and we don't want God to look so harsh and extreme. So we don't want to think of like God torturing people in hell. So it's easier for us to think of God just, just leaves hell and then what happens when you go to a place where God isn't? It's bad things are going to happen, right? So we'll describe hell as separation from God. And in a sense that's true from a, from a broad metaphorical perspective, but I'm worried that when we teach this to unbelievers, they're going to take it too literally. 
Because God is everywhere present. Hell is no exception. If hell is a real place, God is there. Hell is not separation from God. It's separation from God's pleasure. It's separation from his love. It's separation from his goodness. You could maybe say that. But it is not separation from God. It is actually the manifestation of God's terrible wrath. We, people like to think of hell as a place where Satan runs around torturing people and there's no God to stop them. But the problem is, is the Bible tells us that hell is hell for Satan. Right? Satan is not like the king of hell. The Bible tells us that Satan is put into hell and tormented every day, day and night for all of eternity. Satan experiences hell. He doesn't run hell. Right? So the question is, who does run hell? If Satan is also being tortured every day for all eternity, who's doing the torturing? It's our omnipresent, wrathful God. Yeah, that's right. God is in hell. <laughs> in other words, God is present there. So God's omnipresence is a good reason to repent because you don't want to fall under his wrath. This is why the book of Hebrews tells us it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's not a terrifying thing to fall away from the presence of the living God. It's a terrifying thing to fall into his hands in judgment. Um, but another reason we have motivation to repent, not on the grand scale of the judgment day, but just in our everyday life, this is a reminder that God sees all of our sin. Uh, I one time, the story, he, the guy, the pastor admitted it was kind of cheesy. This is kind of cheesy, but it still makes a really good point. He was, used to be a youth pastor, and he was talking about how one time a young boy and a young girl came up to him, and they met with him in his office, and they said, we have, we have a confession to make. We, um, it's, it's been a burden on us, and we just have to confess. We got in my car, and we drove out one late, and we drove out in the middle of nowhere, and, and we did things in my car that, um, that we shouldn't have done, and we want to confess that to you. And he said, you know, thank you for telling me, um, but it, it just so happens that someone actually saw you. And they panicked. <gasps> oh, oh my goodness, yes, yeah, someone actually saw you. And then he told them it was the Lord. And they immediately got relieved. Oh, oh, yeah. And he said, how interesting is it that you were terrified that someone you knew saw you, but you were totally unaffected that God saw you, right? In other words, do we really believe God's omnipresent? Like, do we really believe that? I know you say you believe that, but do you really believe that? Every time we sin, what we're essentially saying is God is not everywhere present. Or we're just saying, I just, I don't care that God sees this, right? Uh, Charnock says the attribute of God's omnipresence is contemned when men will commit that in the presence of God, which they would be afraid or ashamed to do before the eye of man, right? So this is a good reason for us to repent, both to face God's terrible wrath on judgment day and as a reminder that when we sin, God is always there. As we said earlier, there's no hiding from God. He sees your sin, so let's not grieve the Holy Spirit. And then just lastly, obviously, this is a foundation for comfort. It's not just like a scary, there's no getting away from God. He sees your sin. But more importantly, he gives life and breath and everything. The promises of God can always be fulfilled. His love can always be on us because he is always with us. As Gerald Bray says, the Bible tells us that when we feel that God is far from us, the problem is with us and not with him. 
He is never far from us. He has never forsaken us. We feel that way, but he is always there, and that is important. And because God is always there, his love can always be there. And that's what Paul says in Romans 8. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And as many theologians have said, where the love of God is, there God is. You cannot be separated from the love of God because you cannot be separated from God himself. He is everywhere present, so his love is everywhere present.